Once upon a time, there was a, a grand chess master who would play anyone who wished to test their skill, from novice to expert. One day, a, a, a young man sat opposite the Grand Master, determined to beat him. The young man made his, his first move, and the Master smiled. Obviously, the, the young man had been studying the game of chess, for it was a well-known move he had made, but it was a move easily countered by the chess master. With each move the young man made, the master responded with great wisdom. And soon, the young man was checkmate. They played again and again. Each time the young man tried different moves and different strategies. But each time, the master won. When imagining how God can be said to be in control of this world, Some people view God as a puppeteer, a puppeteer, where we are dangling from invisible strings, always doing exactly what God wants. But that view clearly robs us of free will. On the other end of the spectrum, some imagine God as being nothing but a spectator. Seated in some heavenly audience, merely watching us as we run amok, doing our own thing. But that view fails to acknowledge God's involvement in this world. So both views really miss the mark. It is true that God does what He wants, when He wants, and how He wants, because He is God. God is in absolute control, and yet, and yet, He gave people the capacity to freely choose. It's a paradox. And it begs the question, how can God be in control of everything and yet, we have the freedom to make our own decisions. 
I know this is a theological stretch. Okay? It's a theological stretch when addressing the topic of God's sovereignty and God's providence. But perhaps, just perhaps, the image of a chess game between a grand chess master and a novice will help us with this paradox. In the game, the novice moves his pieces around the board as he freely chooses. He follows some basic strategies he has learned about the game. And some of his moves are thoughtful. Some are surprisingly good. And some are foolish. The master, on the other hand, is wise. He knows it all. Nothing surprises him. In fact, he knows the move the novice is going to make even before he makes it. For the master, there is no guesswork. There is no need to anticipate the next move of the novice. For the master has already seen it played out in his mind. And without even knowing it, without even knowing it, the master skillfully weaves the novice's moves into his own game plan where the outcome is never in doubt. Check. This morning we are continuing through the book of Esther, where like a grand chess master, God is weaving the free will decisions and the actions and the events of people, of novices, into his own divine game plan where the outcome is never in doubt. If you remember, Esther was an orphaned girl of Jewish exiles who was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. As a young woman, she was taken against her will for a beauty pageant and placed in a harem for the purpose of pleasing King Ahasuerus. 
And as we left off last week, amongst all the other beautiful women, Esther found favor with the king. And she was crowned by him as the new queen of Persia. It's a great story involving Esther, whose Persian name means star. But now the story takes an interesting twist. And cousin Mordecai now finds himself in the story. So let's pick up where we left off last week. If you have your Bible, turn to Esther chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 19. Esther 2, verse 19. Should be on the board behind me. We are told... When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. Apparently, having a cousin as the queen has some perks. For we are told that Mordecai is now sitting at the king's gate which was an important place mentioned throughout the Old Testament. As you might imagine, the gate was a massive structure through which people constantly flowed in and out. And because there was so much activity at the gate, it naturally became a place where people gathered. As a result, public meetings were held there. It was a place where business transactions occurred where legal agreements and judgments were made, and it was a place where news was shared. If you remember, it was at the gate where Abraham purchased a cave as a tomb for his wife Sarah, who had passed away. In the book of Ruth, It was at the gate where Boaz went to negotiate with another relative for the hand of Ruth. And it was at the gate where Absalom sat to give advice and slowly turn the hearts of the people from their father, King David, to himself. So he could lead a rebellion. So the gate 
is an important place. It's a natural hub for the city. A a park bench for some. And a town hall for others. Where people meet with someone from the government. And it's here in some official capacity that Mordecai is seated in the city of Susa. And on the screen, it's already up, yes, on the screen there is a picture of the palace in Susa with the king's gate. In preparation for my message, I learned that excavations of Susa began in the mid-1800s. And in 1970, archaeologists discovered the very king's gate we are talking about. On one side of the gate was a bridge that crossed a moat. And on the other side of the gate was the king's royal palace. So all public access to the palace was controlled at the gate. And it was a massive gate. According to archaeologists, it measured 130 feet wide. It was approximately 100 feet thick. And it was estimated to be 30 to 50 feet high. This gate also had recessed rooms built within the structure for guards and other officials to use. And Mordecai is assigned to this gate, a place which serves as a setting for the twist in our story. And before we move on, it's also important to take note that Esther continues to keep her Jewish family history a secret. Although she is the queen of Persia, she continues to follow the instructions of her father figure, Mordecai. Okay, so let's continue beginning with verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigfin and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Okay. In those days, the days when everyone, including the king, now seems to be happy, 
Mordecai overhears a plot at the king's gate involving two of the king's officials. For whatever reason, they aren't happy. They're angry. They're angry at the king and they want to kill him. We're told that Mordecai tells his cousin, Queen Esther, of this plot he hears about. And she, in turn, alerts the king, giving credit for uncovering the plot to Mordecai. Well, according to this passage, the allegations were thoroughly investigated and the plot against the king was real. And as a consequence, the culprits involved in the plot were executed, hanged on a gallows, which may be a little misleading to us. When we typically think of being hanged on a gallows, we think of someone being hanged by the neck with a rope, right? But gallows literally means tree. And the idea that they were hanged on a tree probably refers to impalement on a sharpened wooden stake which was a common practice in the Persian Empire. But just so you know, it could just as well refer to crucifixion. As the first recorded recorded crucifixion was carried out by King Darius, the father of King Ahasuerus. Anyway, all of this, the assassination plot, Mordecai's involvement in saving the king, and the execution were all written down by the king's scribe who chronicled everything for the royal record. Now, what happened here may not seem to be a big deal. But remember, God is working behind the scenes. He's working behind what is seen. And this will become a big deal when God determines the time is right. So that brings us to chapter 3. Chapter 3, where we are introduced to a new character in this story. That's that's getting even more interesting. So let's continue with verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamdathah. An Agagite, 
and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. After a few years, after Esther is crowned as king, after the assassination plot, after Mordecai saved the king's life, after all these things occurred, it's Haman, not Mordecai, who is exalted. Mordecai is apparently overlooked and forgotten. He did the right thing. And yet, there's no recognition. There's no reward. Not even a thank you. All the while, this guy Haman, who apparently does nothing, comes out of nowhere and moves up the ranks to become the chief of staff. The number two guy in the Persian Empire. That doesn't seem very fair, God. What's up with that? And who's Haman anyway? At this point, we don't know much about Haman. His Persian name means magnificent. And in some respects, as we will learn later, his name speaks to his character. For he thinks he's all that plus a bag of chips. Haman is a very proud and privileged man. And now a very powerful man. Because he has the king's ear. Haman, as we will see later, embodies everything that God hates in a person. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19, I'm reading from the NIV here, okay? We are told, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. Haughty eyes. These are the eyes that look down on others in arrogance. That's what that means. They look down on others in arrogance. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. This describes Haman to a T. He's a wicked man. He's nothing but trouble. And we are told that Haman is an Agagite. He's an Agagite. Let's pick up with verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. 
for so the king had commanded him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was, it was when they had spoken daily to him, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason was stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. In this passage, it would appear that Mordecai knows something about Haman that we don't. For we are told that Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. I find it interesting that Mordecai was willing to save a pagan king, but he's unwilling to bow before Haman. And just so you know, this act of bowing is not referring to false worship. Instead, as a common practice in that culture, this bowing was only meant as a sign of respect towards another. This act would be very similar to a person in the military saluting another of higher rank simply because they are higher rank. So this act of bowing was a sign of respect. But Mordecai does not respect Haman, and he won't bow. Mordecai is stubborn, and he seems to be the only holdout at the gate. And the other servants of the king take notice of it. They call him out. On a daily basis, they call him out. But Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Even against the peer pressure, even in violation of the king's command, he will not bow. And then Mordecai openly discloses his reason. Something that's been hidden all along. He is a Jew. Now, I need to explain what I think is really happening here, okay? Because there is more to this than first meets the eye. So, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. And we will begin with verse 8. Exodus 17, beginning with verse 8. Are you there? Okay. We are told, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. 
So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out. Fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on each side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Under the leadership of Moses, the Israelites made their exodus out of Egypt. And after their jaw-dropping experience at the Red Sea, they continue on their journey through a hostile and harsh wilderness towards the Promised Land. But then, out of nowhere, the Amalekites attacked the weary Israelites from behind, from the rear. And who would be at the rear? The women and children. The elderly. The injured. And the sick. It was a situation where the strong took cruel advantage of the weak. Well, Moses goes to a hilltop to oversee what was happening. While Joshua and his fighting men took on the Amalekites. And as long as Moses held up the staff of God in his hands, the Israelites were winning. But when his hands became heavy and Moses lowered the staff, the Amalekites gained the upper hand. So Moses had a couple of guys help him hold up his hands and Joshua eventually overwhelmed and defeated the Amalekites. However, from generation to generation, the Amalekites would remain enemies of God's people. Then there came a time, about 400 years later, okay, 400 years later, when King Saul, the first king of Israel, led his soldiers into battle against the Amalekites. The Amalekites would finally get what's coming to them for their sneak attack against the Israelites in the wilderness. And we are told in 1 Samuel 
chapter 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, again, this is King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek. And utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare. But put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. The prophet Samuel told King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Everyone and everything that breathed was to be killed. That might sound harsh. But the Amalekites hated God. They were enemies of God's people. They were a vicious and violent bunch who wanted to exterminate the Jews. And do not forget that for hundreds of years, they were given the opportunity by God to repent. And yet, repentance seemed to be out of the question for these people. They refused to repent. God is patient. But his patience with wickedness is not everlasting. And his character demands that he ultimately punish it. So King Saul led his army into battle against the Amalekites in the southern region of Judah. And Saul was victorious over them. In fact, he even captures the Amalekite king called Agog. Saul had won the battle against Agog. But he lost with God. 
For in his disobedience, Saul saved the best of the livestock. And he spared Agog. Probably so he could personally gloat by parading him around as a captive. King Saul disobeyed God's command clearly given to him by the prophet Samuel. So Samuel takes matters into his own hands and chopped King Agog into pieces. Speaking of pieces, are you piecing this together yet? If you recall from last week, we learned this about Mordecai in chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Right? Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin, and his great grandfather was named Kish. And the name Kish may have been a common name in that tribe. Because hundreds of years earlier, there's another man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. And he was the father of King Saul. The very first king of Israel. He's connected by blood to Saul. Haman, on the other hand, is an Agagite. He's connected by blood to King Agag, a descendant of the Amalekites. It would seem that Mordecai was aware of this family history. And he will not bow down to this Amalekite. And this disrespect was reported to Haman. It was also reported to Haman that Mordecai was a Jew. And once again, after 600 years, the flames are fanned for a blood feud between two ancient enemies. It's a feud 
that will grow like a cancer. As we will see beginning with verse 5. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were thought, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman, who had been alerted to Mordecai's disrespect, is now watching him like a hawk when he goes through the king's gate. And when Mordecai does not bow, Haman burns with this quiet rage. He's filled with wrath. And Haman has options. Haman could ignore Mordecai and just shrug it off. Just a stubborn old man. Just shrug it off. He could take an official stance and report the violation to the king. And the king could imprison Mordecai or execute him. But none of those options were good enough for Haman. Punishing Mordecai alone would not satisfy Haman's hatred. He wanted more. He wanted revenge. He wanted to see the extermination of all of Mordecai's people. All the Jews living under Persian rule. And that would include the Jews who resided in the Promised Land. Haman is the number two man in the Persian Empire. He has the king's ear. He's powerful. And his decisions and actions are not questioned. He hates the Jews. Like Hitler. He's a tool for Satan. And from our vantage point, knowing what we know now, things look really bad. Things seem hopeless for God's people. There is a painting That once hung in the Louvre in Paris. Is it up? 
painted by Frederick Moritz Ritz. The name of the painting was called The Chess Players, but it later became known as Checkmate. The painting depicts two chess players. One player is Satan, who is grinning from ear to ear in arrogance and confidence. And the other player is a young man who looks cornered and beaten. It looks hopeless for the young man. It's checkmate. There's no escape. And at stake is his very soul. Many years later, in 1861, a famous American grand chess master by the name of Paul Morphy came across a reproduction of the painting at a social gathering in Richmond, Virginia. Because Morphy was such a world-famous chess player, the guests, who also liked the game of chess, asked him to look at the painting and to assess the young man's situation. At first glance, when Morphy looked at the position of the chess pieces in the painting, he agreed with the consensus that the young man's position was hopeless. He had lost the game. It's checkmate. Then the conversation at the social gathering turned to other topics. But Morphy remained glued to the painting. And after some time, a chessboard was set up in the same configuration as the painting. Then Morphy told the guests, he would take the young man's place. Because he noticed something surprising. According to this grand chess master, the king still had one more move. And this move would ultimately make the young man the winner of the game. My friends, no matter how hard and hopeless it may seem at times, our lives and our futures are in the hand of our Master. And for us, the final outcome should never be in doubt. 
For to those in Christ, in the end, we win. Check. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth found in your word. Father, I, I'm just so impressed that, quite frankly, you've already seen the end of the game before we make our first move. I thank you that you're in control. I thank you that you are the master. Father, I I pray that you give us a passion and a zeal to cleave to you, to abide in you, to follow you. Help us to live for you. You're the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords, the Master of Masters. You've already won the victory. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, actually he promised, this is a promise, in this life, there will be trouble. That was a promise. I don't like those kind of promises. In this life, there will be trouble. In this life, it may seem hard. In this life, you may feel helpless. In this life, it may seem hopeless. The promise. Jesus also says, I have overcome. I have overcome. The victory has already been assured. Before you and I ever got in the game, it was already over. Our salvation is assured for those in Christ. Not because of what we do, but because of what has already been done. Already been done by Jesus Christ on a cross. He made the ultimate move. 
he made the ultimate move. Checkmate. It's done. It is done. Maybe you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you hear me talk, but it just seems like gobbledygook. I get that. Maybe, for some, you might describe what's going on inside of you like a chess game, like a tug of war. Holy Spirit's pulling you toward God, and you're going down. There's this tug of no. Can't be. Too easy. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. There's this inner struggle going on inside it. This pull between good, good and evil. If God is pulling you towards Him, then respond to Him in obedience. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you about him. I would love to introduce you to him. Your life will never be the same. And that's a good thing. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. Maybe there's something else going on in your life. You would just like some prayer. I'd love to pray with you as well. However the Lord moves you this morning, I just ask you to respond to Him. It's as simple as that. Just respond however He moves. Thank you. Let me uh, uh, close us in prayer. I want to pray for our offering. I think our baskets are back there. And also pray for... Oh, I don't see... There we go. Uh, pray for our fellowship. And also just a reminder, uh, we have baptism um, this morning, and so if you can give me about five minutes to get out there, there, there are some chairs also out there already, about 12 chairs for those who need them, um, and uh, give me about five minutes, I do need to, to speak with someone, and, uh, and then I'll work my way out there, so let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, I, I thank you so much for, for bringing us here this morning, you're so good, we love you, Lord, and Father, we want to we follow you. Thank you for who you are and what you do. You're so good. Father, thank you, Lord, for this, this portion of the service where we give back what you have freely given to us. Father, I pray that you bless the tithes and the offerings that we take in, and Lord, that you would just uh, help us to use your money, and it is your money, wisely. Give us wisdom and insight and discernment. And Father, for our fellowship afterwards, Father, I pray that it would just be sweet, and that we would comfort one another and serve one another. Bless the food and bless those who prepared the food. I thank you, Father, for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.